before I read the scripture reading, if you're a parent at Christ Church, uh, you probably receive emails weekly from uh, the children's ministry director, Debbie Bukowiecki. It's a really helpful uh, email that um, not only just tells us what's going on at the church for our kids, but also helps families to really focus uh, attention um, on the worship service. So it helps us to prepare for the worship. Um, and if you did that this week, there are three words that Miss Debbie would like us to pay attention to today in the service, in the sermon. And that's old and new and already. Okay, so it's probably good for the adults to hear this as well. Okay, so I'm going to read from Ephesians 4, and you'll hear two of these words uh, in the actual passage itself. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. The word of the Lord. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your living word that cuts deep in our hearts and that changes us. I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on the old and the new and what has already been achieved through the death of Jesus on the cross, shedding of his blood for us, I pray, Father, that we'll be strengthened to live in accordance with your will. I pray, Lord, too, for Pastor Andrew, that as he expounds on the scripture passage today, that you would give him clarity of mind and speech so that uh, we can hear the words and be changed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, back to Ephesians, big picture, chapters 1 to 3, what God has done, sort of this heavenly view, redemption from the beginning, uh, before the foundations in time, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, has made us alive together in Christ. Uh, we spent last fall looking at that. We've begun a few weeks ago to pick up chapter 4, uh, where Paul says, therefore, and he, and he starts laying it out. Uh, the first part of chapter 4, which we've been in for the last couple of weeks, is this uh, vision for the church. Uh, therefore, be the church, be who you have been made to be, this uh, body of Christ filling all in all, growing uh, more and more to, to uh, testify to the glory that is in Christ. 
And now he's going to turn, beginning in, in 17 through sort of the middle of chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, he's going to turn not so much to the corporate, but to the individual. And, and he is going to start laying out some practices that should mark each individual Christian's life. Things like telling the truth, things like being sexually pure, all of these various things. But before he does that, we get... One last reminder from Paul in the verses that we have here, verses uh, 17 to 24, of uh, what has happened in the life of a believer that enables us to be the kind of people that God has called us to be. And and it's, it's a momentous change that has taken place in our life. And this is what Paul, and this is what we are going to be digging into today, reminding ourselves before we begin this this long litany of imperatives, beginning in verse 25, uh, who we are in Christ. And I want to start just by sharing with you a testimony of change in the life of an individual. This guy's name is Tom Holland. Uh, Some of you may know of him. He's a historian. He's written several books, uh, he, but the one that I've been recently going through and been quite enthralled by is called Dominion. Uh, it is a book about how crucifixion, you know, particularly the crucifixion of Jesus, changed the world. And he uh, goes and, and just really grapples with this fact, you know, gruesome and horrible is crucifixion, and yet... You know, that has become sort of the hinge point for how we think about the world going forward. Now, I'm not sure exactly where Tom Holland stands uh, with the Lord. Uh, he, if, if he's not a Christian, I, I think he might be close. Uh, he certainly has had his imagination captured in some way. Here's an interview that he gave a little while ago. Uh, He says, essentially what has happened is that I have lost my faith, and my faith was in liberalism. I just do not think that liberalism has any secure foundations at all. As Western power retreats, we've come to realize that these values that we had assumed were universal, human rights, the inherent dignity of man, the obligation of the rich to the poor, are actually very culturally contingent. Our assumption that there are universal values is itself very culturally contingent, and specifically, it is Christian. I can find no basis for believing in any of this stuff at all that does not involve a conscious leap of faith. So what he's saying is, you know, we, we believe in these things in, in the West, like, like loving people, being kind, you know, inherent dignity of people, all of that. But we believe in it because they're Christian. Uh, we believe in it because that, that is sort of the foundation of the society. Going through Roman society, they, they didn't believe in that. And so, therefore, you have this mass problem of slavery. Therefore, you have things like crucifixion and its brutality and all of these different things. Uh, and, and he's grappling with it. 
He says, he goes on to say, I also feel that the legacy of Christian writings, of Christian experience, of Christian activism, of all the things about Christianity that stir and move me, is richer than anything that secular liberalism, secular liberal assumptions have to offer. I find it rich and beautiful and exciting in a way that as a child I found the Romans rich and beautiful and exciting. So again, I, he, there are many things that he says that would say he might not be in, but there are there's this imagination that is captured by the rich beauty of Christianity. Now, what's my point with this? I, I'm not discussing whether Tom Holland is a believer or not. Uh, my point is, there was a change. He, his, he is seeing things differently. He is talking about, I, I used to love the Romans. I used to love their society. I used to think that they were awesome in the way that they handled things. But as I dive into it, I'm seeing it differently. And what I really uh, find my heart drawn to is these values and these virtues that are all part of a, of a Christian society. His, his mind is changing. He is seeing things differently. And this is what Paul is talking about here in, in chapter 4, and he's reminding the Ephesian Christians who were Gentiles. Uh, if you remember back to chapter 3, verse 1, he, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's writing to Gentile believers, and he's saying, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. He's like, well, wait a minute. They, they are Gentiles. What, what, does, what is Paul saying there? He's saying, you have undergone a fundamental core change. A and you are, are part of this ethnicity called Gentile, but you're no longer part of it in the sense that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into, the li into light. You, you have undergone this dramatic change that has allowed you to see the world differently. What does that mean for us? Well, how do we begin to understand this? Three things I want to sort of highlight for us. And the first is this, is that we, we have to absolutely be careful that we understand what Paul is saying here. Otherwise, we can get into some bad places with how we might apply this to our life. And, and to do some of it, we have to pay attention to the, to the grammar that, that Paul is using here. Uh, it is a hard, there's a bunch of hard Greek in here to, trans, uh, to translate. Paul's making up words. Michael referred to that last week. You know, he says, uh, you know, where it says speaking the truth in love, he actually makes this noun a verb, and he says truthing, truthing in love. Uh, so here, he's using some infinitives that are in the aorist tense, which is a past simple uh, definitive action, um, but they're translated for us more as imperatives, and it gives us the sense that, that Paul is saying you know, especially when it says put on and put off, these are the, uh, the words that I'm referring to, that this is a new action that we have to do, that the Ephesians have to do. 
But, but that's not the case. Uh, and, and what Paul is referring to here is actually something in the Ephesians' lives that has already taken place. Um, and we know this from, from several, uh, several, several sort of points of, um, of confirmation. Something that is ever already taking place that Paul is wanting them to live out of. So how do we know this? So one is just the verb tense itself. It's in the aorist tense, which is past, simple, decisive, completed action. Uh, so when Paul is saying, you know, put this on, put this off, like this has, this, ha- this is something that happens once uh, and, and is complete in our lives. Uh, it, it's not something that happens over a period of time. Um, it, it, it happens once. So that's, that's the tense of what is being used here. The context of what Paul is saying makes it even more clear because remember, Paul is writing, chapters 1 to 3, he is writing to people who have been chosen. They've been predestined. They have been made new from before the foundations of the world. And we realize that it's not their effort. It's not by works, chapter 2, lest anyone should boast. But this is what God has done when he entered the morgue, so to speak, and he spoke to dead people. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he has made you alive together with Christ. He, he, he brought you back. This was God's agency, God's action in the life of a people. This is not something that we have the ability to do. Uh, you know, notice further that what Paul is saying here to this point, he's saying take off or put, put off, put on your new self. He, he's, he's using the word here that gets all the way to the core of who we are. The word is anthropos in Greek. You know, it, it's the new humanity. Now, how many of you think you can change your humanity, sort of the core of who you are? Nobody. Now, we, we can't do that. We recognize this. So, so what Paul here is talking about when he's talking about this putting off and putting on is he's talking about something that we live into that has been done for us. You, you get it a little bit more clearly in Colossians chapter 3, the passage that Shinji read for us in the call to confession. So you see uh, there, and, and again, Colossians is the companion book to Ephesians. They were written at the same time. Paul has the same things in mind. He's, he's writing to different audiences, but he's, he's writing about these same things. He says the same language, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, and then he goes uh, through and uh, lists a bunch of things, but you have to put them all away. Do not lie to one another. This is, I think, verse 8. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the, on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and image of the Creator. Here there's neither Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave, or free. Do you, do you see what Paul is saying there? Again, we have the translation that sounds like it's 
something that we are to do in the present, put to death, but then he clarifies and he's saying, no, this is already done. You, you have put off the old self with its practices and you have put on the, the new self, uh, which is being renewed. My point in this is for us to just clearly get in our mind that what Paul is talking about here is not moral improvement. Paul is not talking about uh, behavioral change. As, as important as that is, uh, that's not primarily what Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about here is, you know, if you talk about it from the heavenly perspective, he's talking about regeneration. Uh, he's talking about God making us alive together with Christ. You know, from the earthly perspective, he's talking about conversion, our response to our regeneration, uh, repentance, faith in God. These are the things that are at core what Paul is talking about. And if we miss that, we may think that Paul is talking about simply becoming better people. Now, now becoming better people is good, uh, it's, it's nice, you saw the quote from uh, Keller at our moment of meditation, you know, being moral people is nice, but it's not the same as being made new. A and that is what Paul is talking about here, and we have to understand that, otherwise we're going to get the rest of the book wrong. Uh, we're, we're going to think that we are here to become better people and better people is what is going to get us into heaven, and that's just not the case. We are here because we know that we need to be new people, and it's only new people uh, that will see as, as God wants us to see. That's, that's what we are hoping for Tom Holland, you know, this, this sense of, I used to think that the secular liberalism held the answers, but now I see that it's, it's empty. I used to think that the Roman way of life was pretty attractive, but it's, it, it, it's futile. There's something more beautiful here. What, what, is that, what does that mean to begin to see and to think uh, in this matter. So that's where we start. We start understanding that what, what, what God is calling to us in Ephesians is to, is to recognize that we need Jesus in a fundamental way that will change ourself, uh, that will change who we are at the core. Now, hopefully, you know, you, you begin to ask yourselves, I know we're all at a different place with respect to Jesus. We're, we're all relating to him somehow. Uh, some of you have been walking with him for a long time, really close, love the Lord, hear his voice. Others of you are maybe a little frustrated with him, think that things could be going better in your life, and maybe you're sort of sideways towards him or even got your back turned towards him. Others of you are maybe outside uh, of the body of Christ, but curious. And, and you're wondering about this new life. You're wondering about what this means. We're all relating to Jesus somehow. But what this text tells us is, is that the ultimate way that we relate to him is by being made new. 
uh, being transformed from darkness into life, putting off the old self, putting on the new self. So notice then, uh, in Christ, we, are, we, we have been rescued from a dark past. Uh, you, you see that in verses 17 to 19 here in the passage. Um, we have this real description of what a life apart from Christ is like. And it's really uh, chilling to, to read this passage. Uh, this is a passage that's very uh, commensurate, very similar to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, where you, beginning in verse 18 and following, where you see this hardness of heart, and that's where it begins. Uh, you notice in, in verse, uh, in our verse here, they are darkened in their understanding. Oh, no, wait, let's go back. Uh, yeah, the futility of your mind, yes, verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Sometimes we think that ignorance is the problem, and if we can just simply fix ignorance, then, then we understand everything. But that is not actually what Paul is saying here. He says the core problem is the hardness of heart. You know, it's the ignorance that is in us due to our hardness of heart. You remember what the, the psalmist says. He says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, you can be incredibly smart and be a fool. Uh, it has nothing to do with IQ. It has nothing to do with brain power, any of these things. You know, we have watched incredibly smart people, people like Stephen Hawking who, you know, understands physics and all of these different things more than, you know, probably most of us combined in this room. Incredibly smart, but incredibly hard of heart when it, when it comes to the things of God. And so ultimately the Scripture's verdict is it's a fool. And, and this is what is being, the picture that's being painted here is this hardness of heart that goes into ignorance and then it results in this practice that is greedy and insatiable in terms of its lusts and desires and all of these things. And it's a really, really grim picture. Here's how John Stott talks about this. He says, first comes a hardness of heart. Then their ignorance, being darkened in their understanding. Next, and consequently, alienated from the life of God, since God will turn away from them, until finally they become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. Hardness of heart leads to darkness of mind, deadness of soul, uh, under the judgment of God, and finally, to a recklessness of life. I, it, it is a, a chilling picture of, of what life apart from God looks like. So what do, we, what do we take away from this? How do we begin to apply that to us this morning? So remember, Paul is talking to Christians, and, and he, is, he is using this to remind them of what they have been delivered from. I don't assume that everybody here that we're talking to is a believer. And so part of what I hope is that when, when we read this, 
we recognize like there's there's a really chilling path that is dark and it's apart from God. And, and if you're here this morning or if you hear this voice via audio or whatever it might be, and, and you don't know if you've ever surrendered to the grace of Christ, you don't know if you've ever been made new, it, it's very possible that what Paul is describing is, is you. Like you may be a nice person, but you could still be very alienated from God. And the things that you pursue is just going to be this path towards recklessness. And so it's a warning that is at the same time an invitation uh, to, to surrender and, and to experience this new birth. Part of the reason why I can say that confidently is that others of us here, and, and perhaps I hope most of us, many of us, you know, we hear this and our hearts are, are sensitive to this. We recognize, you know, like with the Ephesians, that yes, we have been, re we have been rescued with that. Because we still see remnants of that old way of thinking. There is this battle within us. We'll talk about that in just a minute. There's this battle within us where our old way of life still kind of clings to us in certain ways and wants to protrude into our life even though we have been made new. Uh, and, and we recognize that and we, we, we see that, you know, we're able to see that because God has done a work in our life. Dead people can't see that. And that's what's really hard about sort of even the gospel invitation is like, if you are dead, I can say it till I'm blue in the face. But, but God has got to make you alive. But conversely, there's some confidence here for believers. Because sometimes when we read this, I find that believers get really discouraged. And, and we say, ah, you know, I see all of these horrible things in me. But praise God that you see it. Because if God weren't at work in your life, you, you couldn't see it. And, and so, weirdly... You know, as Paul goes through this and, and paints this really dark picture, there's some confidence for the believer here to say, yes, the, the Spirit is at work in my life, and one of the ways that I know that is I can, I can see this. I remember when I was a kid, uh, maybe 10-ish years old or so, maybe I was 12, um, I, I couldn't sleep. Maybe I've told you this story before. I was just thinking of various things. My bedroom with its green shag carpet. Uh, that wasn't bothering me so much in the moment, but uh, bothers me when I look back at it. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't sleep because I was thinking about this unforgivable sin. And I was like, could I have done that? Uh, am I in that position where, where I've committed this unforgivable sin? And like I even had these thoughts go through my, my mind in the moment like, uh-oh, did I just do it? Uh, I, I wasn't really sure. So I got up and I went down and I talked to my dad who was uh, reading in the living room. And I was like, help me out with this. What's, what, what's happening here? And, and he said... I wasn't sure if he was happy that I came to him or not. I think he was. Uh, he was winding down after a long day. I understand a little bit more of that now as a parent. Uh, he's like, Andrew, the fact that you're worried about it 
is probably evidence of the fact that you haven't committed it. You know, it's this hardness of heart, this persistent hardness of heart that, that occupies us where the, the beauties of Christ are given to us and there is rejection and rejection and rejection and rejection. That's what Jesus is talking about. And that's what Paul is picturing for us here in 17 to 19. He's saying there is a hardness of heart that it darkens the mind, a futile way of life, all of these things. Uh, we, we take, uh, we take the, the beauty of God and we exchange it for a lie. Paul says in Romans 1. So, so that's the picture of the past uh, that, that believers have been delivered from. Um, the last thing that I want to just say about that, though, is that that should give us incredible compassion for people who are still caught there. You know, when you read that, it, it's such a, a dark path of life. And think about it, and we've been trying to think about it as we've been going out on these prayer walks on, on Wednesday nights. Like, we brush by people every day who, who are trapped in this darkness. And it should absolutely pierce our hearts. Uh, it should absolutely cause uh, compassion to well up in us for, for people that don't know the Lord uh, we went out a couple of weeks ago, and we just sat in the Reeds Lake area, and uh, we were thinking about all of the different things that people give their lives to. Uh, they give their lives to relationships. They give their lives to the pursuit of pleasure and entertainment. And, and it, you can just see it all you know, on display there. We give our lives to a certain brand of education. We give our lives to a certain lifestyle, all of these different things. You see it all on display. And part of what we were asking ourselves is, does it really grieve us when we see this? There's a um, Charles Spurgeon, he imagines now, he's talking about it in his role as a minister, but he's, he's also just opening up for us, you know, what it's like as real people. He says, I, I imagine I'm standing by your coffin now and looking into your clay-cold face and, and realizing that this person despised Christ and neglected such a great salvation. I think what bitter tears I shall weep then if I think that I have been unfaithful to you. And how those eyes, fast closed in death, shall seem to chide me and say, Minister, I, I attended the church where you pastored, but you were not in earnest with me. You amused me, you preached to me, but you did not plead to me. You did not know what Paul meant when he said, As though God did beseech you by us, we pray to you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. You know, what, what Spurgeon is saying here is, is we met, but I didn't have that urgency. I didn't have that compassion that, that led me to see that you were on a path of destruction. And, and I, didn't, I didn't do all that I could in order to plead with you, beseech you, uh, to, to find Christ, to surrender to Him. Now again, we have our part, God does a work, but he's pleased to use us, you know, and when we think about 
think about the, the people that we meet, part of when we read these verses here is it's to stir us up uh, to compassionate hearts because there, there ultimately is. We're all related to Jesus in some way, but there is a line, and, and you're either in or you're out uh, in the end. And, and that, that is the story, and that's what Paul is wanting us to see. The last thing he wants us to recognize is that, you know, when we, when we put off, put on our new self, you know, definitively in Christ, when we've been made new by the work that God has done for us, when we were called out of the morgue, we've been delivered into uh, a delightful present. Uh, Augustine in his confessions, he talks about, you know, he, he lived a very profligate life. He was really in the darkness, uh, licentiousness, you know, giving himself to every kind of lust. And there was a time when he met uh, a former lover of his, and, and they were walking, and um, he saw her and he recognized her. He knew that he couldn't relate to her in the same way that he had related to her before. She comes up to him. She begins to fawn over him, and, and he just sort of keeps on walking. And she's very upset with this. And uh, she, she thinks, maybe he didn't recognize me. And, and so she calls out after him, and she says, Augustine, it is I. You know, and, and she gives her name. It is I. And he turns back and he says, yes, I know, but it is not I. See, he had been changed at, at his core. He was a, a new person. And, and that's what Paul is saying has taken place in us. We have been renewed by the spirit of our mind, uh, which again is passive, uh, so we recognize that what Paul is saying here is he's talking about the work that God does in us. You know, this putting on, putting off. Uh, this is what God does. He makes us alive with, a, with, with Christ. Um, he renews us in the spirit of our mind after the likeness of God in true holiness, um, in true righteousness and holiness. So we are no longer the people. We are no longer the people uh, who walk by darkness in the futility of our mind. We are new people. And so this is what all of us, what we try to say week after week in various ways, what we try to remind us when we come to our, our declaration of forgiveness is this is who we are. You are definitively new creatures. If you are in Christ, you are counted as righteous now as you ever will be. You are as counted as righteous as Jesus is. You are as, righteous, you are as holy as Jesus is because you have been, it, you, it, that has been imputed to you. It's been given to you. So your job, uh, so to speak, as believers is not to make yourself more holy. It, it's not to make yourself more righteous. It is to live out the holiness and the righteousness that you have been given. And that is so important that we get that distinction. Religion is the former. 
Religion says we, we've got to have moral improvement. We've got to have behavioral conformity. We've got to do all of these things. The result of religion is either pride or despair. You, you either become proud that you see yourself at, as progressing at rates that are greater than other people. You, you look down your nose at others and, and you take pride in what you are able to accomplish through your moral conformity. Or you despair. You, you look around and you say, I'm never going to get this. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says... You have been changed. You are righteous. You are holy. Now be the people that you have been called to be. And so that is the aspect where, you know, this putting on, putting off, what Paul is saying is, you know, wear it. Be who you are called to be. Be this person that you have been changed to be. And we know from the way he talks about it here, he is going to then build on this. You know, verse 25, he's going to say, therefore, now put away all falsehood and malice and all of these different things, uh, very similar to the way that, that he does. So there, there is, we, we call it sanctification, there, there is this, this, you know, life that we live that we are working into who we are in Christ. So, so we really should think about our behaviors, but not as a way to earn Christ, but as a result of having been given Christ, having received Christ. Again, I cannot stress, you know, just how important it is to get that distinction because one, you know, the first path, that's going to lead you to hell. If you are just a morally right person, you are just as lost as somebody who is in what we would consider dark, licentious profligatism. Uh, you're just as lost. But we have to be renewed people. We have to be changed people, converted people. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And we wear that in our day-to-day -day life. Why? Because we know that it delights God. We know that it brings joy to Him. We know that it is the path of flourishing. We know it because we know Him. Two things I, I just want to point out to you here as we close. You, you notice how Paul talks to the Ephesians. He's saying, that is not how you learned Christ. Notice what he doesn't say. He, say, he doesn't say, that is not how you learned about Christ. There, there's a, there is a heart-to-heart -heart relationship here in Christ. He's saying, you've learned Him. You know, and he goes on to say, um, that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have. So now verse 21 is a little tricky because it says, assuming that you have heard about Him. So that about is not in the Greek. I understand why the translators, we've got to be gracious to translators, but it's not there. Uh, it says, assuming that you have heard him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. But what he's saying is you've learned Christ. You've heard him. This truth that is in Jesus. 
And it's interesting, like this is the only time that Paul uses Jesus by himself, by itself. He, he oftentimes will say Jesus our Lord or Jesus Christ, but this is the only time that he uses the, the human name, as it were, uh, of our Savior, Jesus, by itself. And I think what he's saying here in, in all of this is that if we really want to be the people uh, that, that God has made us to be and that he's invited us to be, you need to encounter Jesus. We, we need Jesus. Shinji prayed that in the prayer of uh, confession. We, we need Jesus so deeply, not just information about him, but an encounter with him. Brothers and sisters, I know I'm talking to a lot of people who have learned Christ. You have heard him. You know, when I'm talking up here on a Sunday morning, you're not simply hearing Vandermoss. You're, you're hearing the, the very voice of the Savior telling you who you are and, and, and inviting you into deeper relationship with Him, inviting you to enjoy the sweetness of His life that was lived on our behalf. And that is our confidence as we go. When we come to this table, Jesus isn't just giving us, you know, signs and symbols that are apart from who he actually is. You know, we, we believe that when we take the bread and the wine, we are tasting Jesus. That we are, are tasting the reality of who he is. We're not just remembering about it, but we are actually tasting the, the vitality and the life of who Jesus is. And that gives us the strength. That gives us the strength to go out and to be the people that he's called us to be. C.S. Lewis talks about this very similarly. He says, you know, mere improvement is not redemption. Uh, though redemption always improves people here and now and will, in the end, improve us all to a degree that we cannot yet imagine. God came to, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but produce a new man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but it's like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it's got its wings, it, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the lumps on the shoulders, no one could tell by looking at them that they're going to be wings, may even give it an awkward-looking appearance. Brothers and sisters, you are new in Christ. You've been given wings. You know, fly. Fly like God has made us to be. Put off that old self with its old way of life. Put on the new self that God has done in you. This is what the apostle is inviting us to. May it be so in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for its, uh, its power. We thank you for uh, the beauty that it brings us to. And Lord, as we're going to sing, if only we had a thousand tongues uh, to sing your praise. 
because what you have done for us is amazing. So help us to learn to not only sing it in the moment, but sing it throughout this week, to sing it in everything that we do. May the joy of our Lord come through us day by day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.